Open your Bibles this morning, if you would, to John's Gospel, chapter 3. John, chapter 3, this morning, as we continue on looking at Jesus and his conversation with Nicodemus, familiar passage to, I think, most of us. Let's pray this morning before we read the scripture, and then we will dive in. Gracious God, we ask you now to do what only you can do, and that is to illuminate men's hearts and minds through your word. Father, this is your word. You've penned it inerrantly, sufficiently, clearly. And we ask now that you would take it in your divine, sovereign, omnipotent hand and do with it what you will, trusting as we do, Father, that your word never returns void. It always accomplishes that which you have purposed for it to do. And so, Father, we rest in that, but we eagerly anticipate what it will do. So, Father, open our minds, our ears and our minds to receive wonderful things from your law. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. In John chapter 3, let's begin reading at verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 8, which essentially comprises the first half of this divine appointment and conversation that Nicodemus and Jesus are having. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Roughly 500 years ago, A masterpiece was penned by a man who would shape more of the world than he would have ever dared to dream. That book was entitled The Bondage of the Will, and the man was Martin Luther. That work, The Bondage of the Will, was a polemic. It was a a rebuke to the Dutch humanist and theologian Desiderius Erasmus. And in that work, among many things that Luther said, which are helpful, Luther said this to Erasmus. It was a broadside to the pride of this great intellectual who was regarded as one of the leading minds in all of Europe. Luther simply said this, Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. 
That, that's your problem. Your thoughts of God are too human. And I wonder how many of us this morning as we sit here, our thoughts of God are too human. So it must have been for Nicodemus on that night when he came to Jesus. His thoughts of God were too human. Jesus seizes upon this opportunity to deal with Nicodemus's heart and deal with Nicodemus's mind. You see, Nicodemus is pretty sure there's something unique about Jesus, but he's not completely convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. He thinks he probably is. He thinks he might be, but he is still relegating Jesus and the teachings of Jesus to the earthly realm and to a realm that can only be understood through human authority. And he knows not that he is dealing with the one who is himself the authority. What a shock to this man's system, this man who is the teacher of Israel, we learn in verse 10. What a shock to the system of this man who comes to Jesus and before he even utters a question, Jesus gives him an answer he doesn't even understand that he needs yet. Who is this Jesus? Who is this man who walks into the temple, who dares to go into the very epicenter of Jewish life and turn it upside down? Who is he? Nicodemus, your thoughts of God are too human. They're too earthly. And as the dialogue here in John chapter 3, and as we pick up the story in verse 4, as that dialogue continues between Nicodemus and Jesus, and as it builds steam, and as it gains momentum, we find the natural response of Nicodemus to the answer that Jesus gave in verse 3. An answer, remember, to a question that was never even asked. Not even verbalized. Now, you and I might be wondering this morning why Nicodemus didn't stop Jesus at the beginning of verse 4 and and divert his attention back to the thoughts of verses 1 and 2. Jesus, that's not what I'm, I'm talking about. Let me just stop you there before you continue on. Let's go back. I'm just... Wanting to know, you know, some basic things about are you really the Messiah? Are you him? Nicodemus doesn't do that. Nicodemus allows Jesus to go on and to provoke his thinking. And and as we see in verse 4, Nicodemus jumps right in. Rather than going back to his original approach, Nicodemus goes with Jesus' approach. Maybe it's because Nicodemus has been perked by Jesus' words about his own relationship to the kingdom of God, something every conscientious Jew was keen to learn about and to understand and to figure out how they would fit into the kingdom. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's because Jesus raises such authoritative language, such as unless and you must. Maybe that's it. Or perhaps it's because Jesus 
brings out of Nicodemus what was really in his heart to begin with. He, he goes to the real need that Nicodemus has, and Nicodemus seizes upon that. He realizes that, and so he continues in dialogue down the road that Jesus, the man of authority, with authority, lays out for him. Regardless of why the conversation continues the way it does for Nicodemus, Jesus uses it as an opportunity to address the vital subject of the necessity, the utter, absolute, non-negotiable necessity of the new birth. It's a new birth of sovereign regeneration that Nicodemus needs to get. He needs to grasp this. And so Jesus lays out in this conversation three cornerstones for the new birth. I'll warn you, I think we'll only get to one of those this morning. But there are three that Jesus lays out for Nicodemus in verses 4 through 8 as he addresses the necessity of the new birth. And as we begin in verses 4 and 5 this morning, we see Jesus drills down into the necessity that Nicodemus and you and I, all sinners born on this earth, need a new birth. We must have a new birth or we will not see, experience, come into the kingdom of God. So look at verse 4 with me this morning, would you? Jesus has laid out the gauntlet at the end of verse 3. I say to you, unless one is born again, born anew, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And now we finally get a question. Nicodemus actually asks something now worth being asked. And with which Jesus proceeds, he says, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? The question reveals a lot about Nicodemus's understanding or misunderstanding, as the case may be. It also opens the door for Jesus to correct that misunderstanding and elaborate upon the necessity of the new birth so that Nicodemus might rightly understand not only the new birth, but Jesus himself and why Jesus had come. The question is proof that Nicodemus' understanding of Jesus' statement in verse 3 is a miss. Look back at verse 3. Jesus says, and we have it interpreted this way in our English Bibles, and, and again, I, I think it's a good translation because of the conversation that follows, and perhaps that's why the translators sought to go with this translation rather than the alternative translation, which is actually more common. Jesus says, you must be born again. And in verse 4, we find Nicodemus taking that literally, don't we? Oh, what? I've got to go back into my mother's womb? Is that possible? I mean, and without that, I don't get into the kingdom? You see, Nicodemus has an issue. Because Nicodemus has taken Jesus' words at face value, good for him, 
but he's taking it on a horizontal plane. He's taking it with truths that his human mind is capable of understanding. And allow me to quote Luther again. Your thoughts of God are too human. That sums up, I think, Jesus' response to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, I'm not talking about a physical birth a second time. You see, Nicodemus is between the rock and a hard place because Nicodemus, more than likely, is an older man. To be the teacher of Israel is not something that would have come early in life, usually later in life. Given the, the, uh, the time spans that we know of other men who were revered as great teachers in Israel among the Pharisees and among the Sanhedrin, we, we understand that this would have meant Nicodemus is probably more advanced in years than he is younger. Also understanding that at this time, the life expectancy was not very long. All that to say this, Nicodemus may be asking because for him to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God would require a mother that more than likely was no longer living. This is traumatic for Nicodemus. Nicodemus asks the question in such a way that it expects a negative answer. He says, now listen, Jesus, surely not. Surely not. A man can't go back into his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Surely not. Surely not. Surely there's something I'm missing here. J.C. Ryle writes this. The question of Nicodemus is precisely one of those which the natural ignorance of man in spiritual things prompts a person to ask. Again, Nicodemus your thoughts of God are too human. Your thoughts of salvation are too human. They're, they're too earthly. They're too earthy. They're too bound by man's understanding. It's not of this world that I save you, Nicodemus. It is out of this world that I will save you. And thus the translation that jesus is really getting at is this unless a man is born from above you remember that from last week that is actually the more common translation in the new testament of this word and i think it sets up the perfect uh, contrast here between nicodemus's understanding of the gospel and of the new birth and of the doctrine of regeneration and jesus absolute understanding of it Nicodemus says, oh, it's about being born again, as if it has to happen in a way that I can comprehend, in a way that I wrap my mind around, in a way that's understandable to me. And Jesus says, that's not it at all, Nicodemus. It's from above. And you better be glad that it is. Because a salvation that is relegated, a new birth that is relegated to this realm will do nothing to get you into the realm to come. Jesus is plainly saying to Nicodemus, my kingdom is not of this world. So no, you can't go back into your mother's womb and be born a second time. That's not what we're talking about. 
And this is a common theme for Jesus. Look over, flip over a few pages to John chapter 8 and verse 23. John chapter 8, verse 23. Jesus speaking says this, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Get your mind on a higher plane, Nicodemus. You're trying to put heavenly truths in the realm of human understanding, and that just doesn't work again in John chapter 18. Jesus uses the same phraseology in verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Jesus is laboring with Nicodemus to try to help him Understand that, Nicodemus, when I speak of a new birth, I'm really speaking of a birth from above, which does birth you again. But it's not one that can be handled, humanly speaking. And yet, this new birth that is from above, this new birth that is not of this world, this new birth that Nicodemus can do nothing to affect or force into being is still necessary. It does nothing to make it any less necessary. Just because Nicodemus can't comprehend it does not mean it's not necessary. Just because Nicodemus cannot affect it or do anything to provoke it, he cannot induce his own spiritual labor or birth, as it were, but it is still necessary. Jesus kingdom is not of this world neither can nicodemus's birth into it be from this world and so notice jesus words again unless a man is born again verse three unless verse five truly truly I say to you, do you notice the repetition and the pace at which Jesus has invoked this phrase, truly, truly? That is actually not a common phrase. It's one that's familiar to our ear, but in the scope of the Gospels and in the scope of the New Testament, Jesus actually doesn't use all that often. He reserves it for occasions in which maximum impact is needed to convey a truth. It's like us overusing the word awesome to the point that really awesome doesn't mean anything anymore. The term awesome means to be filled with awe, jaw-dropping awe. Everything's awesome now. So that really, in effect, nothing is awesome. So when Jesus speaks and he says, truly, truly, it is for maximum awe-filled impact. Notice, he uses it in verse 3 and immediately turns around again in verse 5. That is very uncommon. Jesus says, truly, truly, of a truth confirmed in heaven, this I speak to you is the final word, authoritative preaching and teaching by Jesus here. 
It is required. It is necessary that a man be born again from above. And in such a way that it will stupefy human imagination. Listen, brothers and sisters, a salvation that you can fully explain, lock down in a box, comprehend with human wisdom is not a salvation that is worth much. It is literally mind-blowing. The more we understand of who Jesus is, the more we understand of what Jesus' death on the cross actually meant, the more we understand of how long this plan of redemption has been in place, the more we grasp of that, the more we dig into that, the more mind-blowing it becomes. Nicodemus, it's outside of this realm. That's what you have to understand. Certainly Nicodemus has to be perplexed about how this is going to happen. That's his question, right? Jesus, how is this going to happen? I mean, am I going back into the womb? What's this going to look like? Spell it out for me practically, Jesus. As much as he is troubled by the how, I believe he is equally troubled by the who that is involved. Again, as I mentioned earlier, Nicodemus is probably the old man that is mentioned in verse 4. Notice what he says. How can a man be born when he is old? You know, he's asking for a friend. This is him. How's it going to happen to me, Jesus? My mom's gone. How's it going to happen? Do you see how large I am? I mean, so many things must have been swirling in that poor man's mind. How is this going to happen? And who will it happen with? Jesus, are, are you telling me that the kingdom for me is lost? That that somehow I've missed it? And there's no hope for me? Nicodemus is perplexed. I I think we, we look at this as some casual conversation. Nicodemus understands one thing, though. And it would behoove all of us to think like Nicodemus in this case. The kingdom of God is deadly serious. This is, Nicodemus understands this. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about Your soul. The new birth is that imperative. It is that serious. And Nicodemus is bothered and he is perplexed. And and, and salt is added to the wound when Jesus continues to say, you must be born again. How? By what means? Who's involved? Young people are reading. On Friday afternoons, they've been meeting for book club this summer, and they're reading a biography of the great evangelist George Whitfield. There's an account in Whitfield's life where he was preaching this text, and he kept saying over and over again, you must be born again, you must be born again, you must be born again. And a lady came up to him after his sermon. She said, Mr. Whitfield, why 
do you keep saying we must be born again? And he said, because, dear lady, you must be born again. This is Jesus and Nicodemus. The new birth, because it is not tied to this world, stupefies the mind, but on a positive note, it is not bound by the efficacy of what this world can offer. So thankful that our salvation, that our hope of eternal life is so far beyond what this world can offer. Aren't you? Hey, look, even at its best, we've seen what this world offers, and it's pretty weak. Praise God that our salvation in the new birth comes from outside of us, comes from realms above, in order to fit us to live in realms above. It's not anything that man can produce. So what then is the new birth, and what does Jesus mean by his insistence with Nicodemus that you must be born again? It is simply this, Nicodemus, you must be born again spiritually. Spiritually. And may I say that from a human perspective, it would be easier to be born again from your mother's womb a second time than for you to birth yourself spiritually. You have a better chance of figuring out some way in which you could experience the physical birth again than you are by your own strength, by your own efforts, by your own merit, by your own work, being born again spiritually. You can't do it. The Apostle Paul labors at length throughout his epistles to tell us this one truth, as he so eloquently says in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in trespasses and sin. Utterly dead. You cannot raise yourself to life. The spiritual birth is a miracle. I would argue that the physical birth and conception and everything involved is miraculous as well. But there are explanations. That there are things we can trace and there are things we have learned in the development of science as to how certain things work and we can predict with certain reliability, certain degrees of reliability, what will or won't happen based on chemical realities physical realities. But not one of us can explain the spiritual birth. It is truly a miracle. There is no science that can quantify. It is a work of God. It is a grace of God. It is a mercy of God. Like the wind that comes upon us when we don't even want it. And it causes a man to be alive, not only to want it, but to believe it. It is a work in the hand of God no man can do. And so Jesus continues in answering Nicodemus' question. Verse 5, truly, 
Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water uh, or of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean? How is Jesus describing the new birth here? And again, Jesus is still trying to get Nicodemus back to verse 3. And he just essentially repeats himself from verse 3 and verse 5, but just in a slightly different way. Trying to make it easier for Nicodemus to grasp what he's trying to teach him. What a patient and kind teacher Jesus is. He develops the terminology a little more in verse 5. It's a, the thought is expanded a bit. But it's Jesus' statement in verse 5 that has become the subject of some controversy. And I don't think that's necessary. What does it mean to be born of the water and the Spirit? Are we, are we talking about physical birth? Are we talking about baptism? What is Jesus saying? But the Scripture is actually quite clear, and some of you have probably read that and, and thought, well, I don't, what does that mean? In fact, some of you have even asked me, what does that mean? What does it mean to be born of the water and of the Spirit? Again, it's the same truth formula from verse 3. Truly, truly. So we have a clear-cut statement. Jesus is saying, verily, verily, this is true. It should be plain enough for you to see. But I want you to notice several things that help us understand what Jesus means by water and Spirit. First of all, there's a grammatical consideration. When Jesus uses that phraseology of, of water and the Spirit. He only uses one preposition, and in the language of which the New Testament is written, that indicates that what follows, if there's only one, that they're to be taken together as one thing, one cohesive unit. And so notice Jesus does not say of water and of the Spirit. It is simply of water and the Spirit. So that we are to be thinking and our minds should be clued in on that Jesus is simply speaking of the same thing from two different angles. He's not wishing to make a distinction. Now, he does make a distinction further down in verse 6. But he's not doing the same in verse 5. They're different. In verse 5, Jesus says the new birth is by water and spirit. They're referring to the same thing, the same action that, that takes place. Now, I can let, let me see if I can illustrate that for you this morning in a way that we would understand. I could say to you, I'm going to go out the parking lot, I'm going to turn right onto the highway, and I'm going to head north to La Mesa. Now, both are true. I am going north, and I am going to La Mesa. And I could even say I'm going to Lubbock past that. But it's all the same thing. The point is that my vehicle is on the road, and I'm headed north, and I will encounter both of those realities as I head north. Jesus says the new birth is by water and spirit. It is one act. The necessity of the new birth comes from one place, in other words. And so we understand, okay, Jesus is talking about one thing. What is the one thing he's talking about there? Well, for that, we go back to our Old Testament. 
Because there is not only a grammatical explanation, there is a theological explanation. Some, again, have tried to see what Jesus is saying as two different things. Water, well, what if that's baptism? Should we all, do we all have to get wet to go to the new kingdom? And then the spirit, well, what is that? Because once we're there, you mean there's something else we need? No, it's one thing. And we don't need to be confused by it. Because we have a, an interpretive key in the Old Testament. Interpretive principles that help us. Because over and over in the Old Testament, the prophets in particular mention in speaking of the new covenant, of speaking of the the new birth coming through the Messiah, often mentioned the new birth, the spiritual birth in relation to water. D.A. Carson points out that the new birth was prophesied as that which would be poured out and let me read you some text and i think you'll come to mind and you'll say yeah now i remember that that makes sense joel chapter 2 verse 28 again a text that peter seizes upon for his sermon at pentecost in acts chapter 2 i it will come about after this that i will pour out my spirit on all mankind your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And that makes perfect sense with Jesus' term, right? You must be born from above. Unless, Isaiah says, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Spirit and water again. They have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Their system is dry. Doesn't work. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. And so there is a basis to go back to the Old Testament and say in John chapter 5, Jesus is clearly seizing upon something that should have been familiar to Nicodemus. Nicodemus This shouldn't be so hard for you. You've heard of water and spirit being mentioned in relation to the new covenant and the new birth throughout the Old Testament. And that is why Jesus is founded in what he says in verse 10. Look down at verse 10 in John chapter 3. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Nicodemus, you're the Old Testament expert. How did you miss this? You shouldn't be confounded by this. This should, be, this should be remedial for you, Nicodemus. The new birth is something done for you, not because of you. It will be poured out from on high. That, by the way, rules out baptism as an interpretation of verse 5. Because baptism is not on high. It is what? On this plane. 
It's an earthly thing just as much as being born a second time would be. And so Jesus is kindly helping Nicodemus understand that that he's missing the point. Nicodemus, you should have grasped this. Nicodemus, this shouldn't be new news for you. Water baptism is not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. He would hardly rebuke Nicodemus for missing a reference to water baptism when it hadn't been mentioned. But coupling the mention of water and spirit as related to the new covenant and the new birth, Nicodemus had heard of. So it should have made sense to him. But notice even then, as I mentioned last week or the week before, notice how kind Jesus is. Jesus doesn't say, Nicodemus, that's strike three, you're out. Get out. I'm tired. It's late at night. Quit wasting my time. No, Jesus continues on, doesn't he? What a patient and plotting Savior he is. He wants Nicodemus to get the point. And Nicodemus does. Some don't, Nicodemus does. Because at the end of John's Gospel, we find again Nicodemus at the cross. This time it's in broad daylight. This time he's helping with the body of Jesus. This time he appears to be unafraid of what the Pharisees think. This time he appears to be unafraid of what the Pharisees will do, having just witnessed what they're capable of doing. I believe Nicodemus' life was changed. And it was changed by the truth, the hard, even the hard truths that Jesus is speaking. Brothers and sisters, just because the truths are hard doesn't mean they're not true. And just because they don't fit in our abilities doesn't mean they're not true. Jesus is truth. He speaks truth. He labors to be as clear as he possibly can be. And unless we think this is the only time that Jesus speaks of water and confuses somebody, just wait till the next chapter. Because in John chapter 4, the woman comes to him at the well, right? And Jesus starts talking about living water, and she says, can I have some? Who am I? I am the living water. And like Nicodemus, he has a conversation with her. Her as well, guiding her thoughts, trying to help her understand and see. And she does, doesn't she? Her eyes are eventually opened. I believe a new birth comes upon her. She runs back to the village and she says, Come see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. Now, who can do that but God? And who can offer forgiveness of sins but God? And that's what angers the rest of the Pharisees, right? In Mark chapter 1 and 2, who forgives sins but God? And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. I am He. I am the living water. I am the one who has come to accomplish the new birth. Nicodemus, quit thinking earthly. Get your eyes up. You must be born again from above. 
So what Nicodemus needs but cannot grasp is the very same thing you and I need. And that is something so radically different from what this world can offer. We need a Savior from above. We need one who offers what this world cannot offer. We need him to offer it in ways that this world has never even thought of offering it. You see, everything that the world offers you, even when it comes to you, clothed in religious garments, says this. Do this, do that, do this, do that more, add to this, keep on going, do, do, do. Do you know what Christianity says? Done. Done. By God's sovereign work, done. It has been from above. It is perfect. It accomplishes that which God intended for it to accomplish. And it is done. The greatest assurance that we can have is that our new birth has come from above. It's been wrought in us by God Himself. Jesus, and by proxy His Spirit, never turns our assurance and turns our hope and turns our thinking back to something we or others could do. It always turns us to Jesus. It always turns us to the Messiah. It always turns us to the great monumental Conclusion of John's gospel on the cross, right? It is finished. Here's where we find our problems, isn't it? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never come in faith to Jesus Christ. Perhaps it's because you're Thoughts of God are too human. Perhaps it's because your thoughts of salvation are too works-oriented. Rather than pure, unmitigated dependence upon God who births from above. who opens blind eyes, who causes dead dead men to breathe, who creates faith within where there was no faith, so that we do believe. So that we do come to the end of John chapter 3, and we see, don't we, how Nicodemus, how this ends up for Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you'll know you've been born again when you believe. Belief doesn't cause the new birth. Belief is the effect of the new birth. For a man who's been regenerated, whose eyes have been opened, whose soul has been made alive to see, to hear, to believe. But we're so earthly minded, we struggle to embrace this otherworldly gospel. 
we want to do something. We want to contribute some way. We want to be able to explain it fully in a way that makes us comfortable. I'm glad Jesus didn't let Nicodemus go down that road, aren't you? You think Nicodemus would have slept much that night if Jesus had kind of, well, I don't know, maybe there's a way for you to be born again when you're old. Aren't you glad Jesus short-circuits that argument, short-circuits Nicodemus's worldly perspective? He says, no, Nicodemus, this isn't it at all. Unless you are acted upon supernaturally from above, which results in the again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Every one of us who have believed need to come to terms with the reality that it was all of grace. It was all of God's work that He opened our eyes, that He brought a conviction of sin, that He showed a need for a Savior, that He created a a desire to believe and an ability to believe. It wasn't us. It was the Spirit poured out upon us so that we might be saved. All glory and thanks go to Him then, right? Paul, Ephesians 2, 9, so that no man may boast. So that no man may boast birth is from above but it is absolutely necessary Nicodemus absolutely necessary let's bow our heads and close our eyes